This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, I hope everyone is having a grand um, interregnum between Christmas and New Year's. Um, I hope everyone had a everyone who celebrates Christmas who had a wonderful Christmas. Everyone who celebrates Hanukkah had a wonderful Hanukkah. To all of those uh, proud atheists out there, I hope you are taking what satisfaction you can from this cold immaterial world as the earth continues its rotations around the sun. Speaking of which, this is, I believe the last, I'm pretty sure. In fact, this is the last ruminant solo remnant of 2023 from the feedback I get. I think this was kind of the year where it kind of took off for people. Either I did something different or they got what I was trying to do or some mixture or something. I don't know. My wife still hates it. I still am very self-conscious about it, but I am very grateful for the positive feedback. Why don't we start with just some rank punditry, because it's what I've been talking about in our Slack channel at the Dispatch and talking to my wife about this morning, recording this Thursday morning, yesterday, which, if my calculations are correct, was Wednesday. Nikki Haley at a New Hampshire, which I think is relevant, uh, town hall, meet the candidate kind of thingy, um, was asked what she thought caused the Civil War. And I think there's a general consensus everywhere that it was a bad answer. There are disagreements out there brewing about why it was a bad answer. Well, don't come with an easy question or anything. I mean, I think the cause of the Civil War was basically how government was going to run, the freedoms and what people could and couldn't do. What do you think the cause of the Civil War was? I mean, I think it always comes down to the role of government and what the rights of the people are. And we, I will always stand by the fact that I think government was intended to secure the rights and freedoms of the people. It was never meant to be all things to all people. The man then responded, quote, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answered the, that question without mentioning the word slavery. Haley quickly replied with the question, what do you want me to say about slavery? The man said, you've answered my question. Thank you. And Haley replied, next question. Um, so you can, well, the Washington Post headline is Nikki Haley was asked what caused the Civil War. She made no mention of slavery. That's the headline, right? So John McCormick had this line a while back uh, where he was like the, you know, what caused the Civil War? Uneducated position, slavery. 
middle brow position, complex factors having to do with various tensions among the states, blah, 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 blah. Informed answer, slavery. And I think that's basically right. I mean, the there are a lot of ways you could answer this question that would have been better, I think. I think we can come up with a zillion. My own answer would be something along the lines of, look, the Civil War was very complicated, but the one indispensable both necessary and sufficient ingredient was slavery and the role of slavery in the United States. And then you can go any direction that you want to go, but why you don't acknowledge, why you wouldn't acknowledge that is one of the things that's causing a lot of people agita. One of the defining, one of the main arguments is that, and I'll spare you the names of people in our Slack channel are taking different positions on this and also different positions on how big a deal this thing is. Let me just start by saying, I don't think it's that, I'll tell you where I'm coming from first. I don't think it's that big a deal, at least not on the merits, I certainly don't. But this is a real pivotal time. Nikki Haley has got this 12-game parlay kind of move to be able to sort of become the nominee, and you have to get every stage of it right. And so unforced errors like this are bad. Um, They're going to spook some donors. They're going to spook some voters. They're going to attract some, you know, pile on. At the same time, I don't, again, I don't think it would matter that much, but it's this also this really weird week where it's a very slow news week. There's not a lot else to talk about, um, particularly in politics. And so you could see people kind of running with it. I think the, the criticism that has the most power to it is that Haley was working a little bit off of muscle memory from running for, you know, governor and state legislator in South Carolina and just has this sort of scar tissue or reflexive, you know, uh, reflex response about not getting into the war between the states and that kind of thing. And I think that probably informed some of her answer. But I also think, and I think this is where the criticism bites the most, is that, look, she's not pro Confederacy or pro-slavery. She isn't a lost cause Southerner. She's the kid of immigrants. Her son-in-law is black. She took down the Confederate flag. You know, that's not who she is. But she appointed Tim Scott to the Senate. I mean, she's just not, she never played in that sort of neo-segregationist world, but she had to deal with it. And I think that the criticism here is she is being called a rhino by that Bannon crowd and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, in DeSantis world and all of that. And she was afraid of some possible landmines and she wanted to avoid them all. And she also had libertarian brain going on because she was in New Hampshire. And so she wanted to make it a thing about freedom. And basically she overthought the answer because she is scared of pissing off different coalitions on the right. And it's a kind of pandering kind of thing that where if you immediately go into what's the, there's some questions where if you just, your first thought is what is the answer that is going to piss off the least number of people or not attract the most criticism, you actually attract more criticism because it reveals the kind of politician that you are. And I actually, look, I think Nikki's more of a conviction politician than her critics claim, but she's also a pop for sure, you know, a politician politician. And this isn't quite, you know, Bill Clinton saying, I didn't smoke marijuana, but, um, or I did smoke pot, but I didn't inhale. Or about the Gulf War, I 
agreed with the minority, but I would have voted with the majority. But it betray- both of those statements got him endless grief. He still went on to become a two-term president, but those kinds of statements reveal the kind of politi- the kind of calculating politician you are. And I don't think Nikki is immune to that kind of criticism. And that kind of criticism is pretty difficult, um, painful in a moment where you know we're still in this sort of populist phase where focus group kind of establishment answers are considered you know, corrupt. And so anyway, I think it's going to have legs. The left is, you know, the mainstream media and liberals are going to try to turn it into her pandering to segregationists and all this kind of stuff. It's a gaffe. She's already trying to clean it up this morning on New Hampshire radio, suggesting, which I think is kind of a dumb move, that the questioner was a Biden plant. The whole reason why she's kind of like having to dance right now, her way out, is because it's even if it's a gotcha question, it's an, it's it's not a gotcha question, right? It's not you you should be able to answer how you think when you know what caused the civil war. As one of my colleagues was saying, if you in fact think you belong to a party where you cannot take some satisfaction in the fact that your party was on the right side of the civil war and that the first Republican president was in fact the guy who commanded the Union troops and um, ended slavery. Um, if you feel like you can't be honest about being a little proud about that, or at least speaking honestly about it, then um, maybe you shouldn't be in the party, you know, um, which is something that a lot of people should be thinking about. So anyway, I don't know that it is as legs because there's also a way, I mean, it's going to have a half-life, right? It's going to have legs for a little while, but I, I just don't know. It's not, it's not a campaign ender. It was a bad answer. She'll clean it up. She's good at cleaning up this kind of thing. At the same time, the more... One of the things we've learned from the last eight years, 20 years, I don't know, is that it's not necessarily uh, bad for your campaign in the Republic, at least in the Republican primaries. If the mainstream media is calling you a racist or something, then again, I I mean, I just don't know that that's going to be the actual charge. I think it's going to be more about this sort of meta thing about her relationship with the party. Jeff Blahar has got a really good post over the corner saying, you know, making this basic critique about how the problem with with Nikki's answer is that she's afraid of the voters and she's not, she's not treating them like adults. And I agree with that at the same time, treating the voters like adults is not exactly the winning strategy for the Republican party in the last couple cycles. I mean, Donald Trump does not treat the the voters like adults. Um, Chris Christie does treat the voters like adults. And guess what? He's the most unpopular Republican around. Nikki Haley has gotten to where she is a little bit by actually refusing to treat the voters like adults. And so I agree that that's what bothers me about her answer. But I'm not sure it's bad politics. All right, so was that convoluted enough for you? Is this going to be a big deal? Yes and no. Should, will she take a fork in the road? Probably. All right, that's, that's all I can do for you for hot take instant reaction to this. Let's never forget that Donald Trump could do something at any moment, including while I'm recording this, to make her problems much worse or much better or to completely distract people from this conversation entirely. So who knows? So I did a G-File on Wednesday and um, got some nice feedback about it. And yes, I will be doing one 
on Friday as well, which will come out by the time you listen to this. So yes, I did one yesterday. Um, hello from the past. I'm a little sheepish about it because I had originally written like 600 words on this other topic, sort of setting up how I was going to do this potpourri kind of uh, G-File. Because one of the things I feel guilty about is that the G-File originally started as a basically a blog. It was before the word blog existed, but that was sort of the format. Sometimes there'd be long items and sometimes there'd be short items, but usually it was a mix of both. Over the last few years, it's like, it's really just become one long essay, which was never what it was really supposed to be. And so I keep trying to come back to these sort of, here's some little things kind of approach. Uh, and I just fail. And I don't know exactly why I fail. I'll have to do a rigorous personal inventory. So I set up this thing yesterday to do that. And then the first item I got into was just a tweet that I had seen that I thought raised an interesting point. And then like 1600 words later, I was like, okay, I don't have any more room for any other light items. So I had to cut the first 600 words, which I liked because they didn't actually set up the thing. So anyway, it begins, it's entirely the, the news peg, such as that phrase, whatever meaning that phrase has in this context, was uh, this guy's tweet about um, how, I'll read it to you. I'm not going to read the whole G file, don't worry. But yeah, this guy, he follows me, but I, I, I really don't know him. Um, or his name on Twitter is Swan Marcus. And he had this tweet where he said, quote, there should be a name for people like Taylor Lorenz and Taylor Lorenz, is that how you pronounce it? There should be a name for, the, for people like Taylor Lorenz and Sean King where right-wingers figure out they're crazy really early on. Um, liberals get neg negatively polarized into defending them, and then they start acting so insane that the libs have to admit the conservatives were right. In terms of the context of people like Taylor Lorenz and Sean King, he's absolutely right. These are these sort of social media people. I mean, Taylor Lorenz is a, still a technology reporter for the Washington Post, I gather. But I think she's kind of a silly person. I'll just leave it at that. And she tweeted some silly things and says silly, silly things and is one of these people who's, you know, so deep in the sort of liberal cocoon. That her, she has no sense of, this is my impression of her, you know, the fish don't know they're wet kind of thing. She has no idea that her assumptions and instincts are basically cliches at this point for sort of knee-jerk progressive um, tropes. And she's kind of a character. I don't know if it's some of it's deliberate or not. And Sean King is, you know, just this social media influencer guy who's f full of nonsense, right? But I think you can apply this to other people as well. I mean, you know, a lot of us on the right immediately took for granted that Jesse Smollett you know, his hate crime thing in Chicago was bogus. I got a lot of trouble for being one of the first writers to call BS on the um, the Virginia, the UVA rape story. Just didn't seem true to me. And almost just more broadly, like lots of those kinds of things. You know, Rebecca Jones in Florida, who, you know, ran some website about for the public, for the health department or whatever that was. You know, conservatives, particularly, you know, my friend Charlie Cook had her number very early on that she was just making stuff up and telling mainstream media what it wanted to hear. And I remember listening to her um, give interviews to NPR and she was quoted in the New York Times. And then you go over the corner and you see Charlie Cook just sort of 
just eviscerating everything that she said, pointing out how it was just flatly false. I mean, this is sort of part of the story of, of my life as a pundit is like conservatives spotting these fads, these, you know, instant celebrities, the Michael Avenatti types um, that all of a sudden the media elevates and makes into this, make into these huge truth tellers and whistleblowers and, and, and all the rest. And then it takes the right to sort of say, this is fishy and then point out that it's kind of BS. And sometimes the people, you know, who get elevated aren't crazy or frauds. They're just wrong, right? Or they're exaggerating or they're um, only giving one side of things. And then it's, you know, it, it all works itself out. But sometimes they're just bonkers, right? And and weirdos. But the left, because they're saying what, what the sort of mainstream media types and, their, and the confirmation bias is so strong that th- that these sort of, you know, truth tellers are just too good to check. And so I think it's a, you know, it's a fun game. And I was asking, you know, friends yesterday, can you think of other examples? And, you know, we had, you know, we had some good ones, you know, I mean, I put a lot of them in, you know, there was like Naomi Wolf. It was really obvious to me and a lot of other people much earlier on that she's bonkers. And I I mean, I mean, bonkers in like a real bonkers sense. She makes stuff up. She's paranoid. She's weird. The best thing was, you know, she recently came out with a whole book. And the whole book was, you should go find the, maybe we can put in the show notes. Uh, she did this fantastic interview for, I think, the BBC, but some British TV show. This episode, you know, her last book was called, I think it was Outrages. It, a lot of it was premised on how sort of draconian and terrible the British government was when it um, passed the British Obscene Publications Act of 1857. And then she was on a BBC radio show. And I'll read you from this BBC report. It says, Dr. Wolf alleged that she had discovered that, quote, several dozen men were executed for having homosexual sex during the 19th century. Quote, I don't think you're right about this, Sweet replied the host, before detailing the term death recorded in fact meant that judges had abstained from handing down a death sentence. I don't think any of the executions you've identified here actually happened, he said. And then he goes on to point out all of the evidence that she hung her whole case on was just wrong. And she just got it wrong. But like, I remember when I was working on liberal fascism, the, some of the stuff that, that Naomi Wolf came up with, it was just so clear that she was kind of you know, paranoid and unhinged. And, and I think COVID made her much worse, but it took a long time for the left. I mean, the mainstream left to recognize what was kind of obvious. And anyway, in the G file, I go on to point out that like the right can't really throw stones on this because the right in many ways has a much bigger whack job problem than the left does. Um, and, and I shouldn't say bigger. It's different. It's asymmetrical. I keep making this point about the both sides thing, which is that both sides, both left and right, have problems. But because of the nature of how liberal elites and our conservative, uh, progressive elites and conservative elites are distributed among leading institutions, the sociologies are just very, very, very different, right? Conservatives, right of center people basically don't control any elite institutions in this country with, you know, the exception of Fox News, some, you know, I mean, you can say National Review, sure. You can say The Dispatch or whatever, right? You can say, you can start pointing to a handful of, of smaller institutions, the American Enterprise Institute, the Heritage Foundation, you know, fine. You can make those cases. But like the elite institutions that are recognized 
by the entire country as elite institutions are almost entirely monopolized by the left or the center left or non-conservatives, right? You might say, okay, the military doesn't count, but Hollywood, publishing, journalism, higher education, museums, um, the arts. I mean, you just go down a very, 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 very fashion, you know, go down a very long list. And these things are sort of controlled by the center left. Now, that doesn't mean they're controlled as like a conspiracy, but there is very serious problem on the on the elite left of 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 groupthink of a monoculture. Um, Michael Lind, who I'm not a fan of, had a good piece on this last. I think it was last year. I remember writing about it in the G file about how partly because of the role of big left wing um, foundations, there's this sort of homogenization effect at a lot of these elite institutions where you're just not allowed to have even like serious fights of class versus race as the prisms through which to judge everything. Everything's got to be intersectional. Everything's got to lead with race or gender or, you know, that kind of stuff. The critical theorists have won and they've enforced a kind of conformity across big chunks of the left and elite institutions, particularly places like the New York Times, the Washington Post, um, Harvard, Ivy League, that kind of thing. So that they are just not trained. I mean, like training doesn't matter. Just the milieu, it's in the water, right? That if someone claims to have been the victim of a hate crime, except for Jews, the immediate response is, well, of course they were, of course they're telling the truth. And often they are telling the truth. I'm not saying that all hate crime allegations are made up by any stretch of the imagination, but there are a lot of hoaxes out there and some are fishy, right? I mean, Jesse Smollett was fishy. Um, it just made no sense that three in the morning, he's out walking around friggin' Chicago in what was it, January, February, um, and just happens to ha run into like two MAGA guys who wanted to lynch Jesse Smollett because they recognized him from a black TV show. I mean, it just, it was just, I've forgotten more things that were wrong with that story. People on the right are like trained up to sort of not believe narratives pushed by the mainstream media. And, and that means the narratives that aren't true are going to get caught first by the right and they're going to get promoted first by the left. So the problem is, is that like a lot of these nut jobs get elevated. And when I say I'm using nut job, job in the most Catholic sense possible to include um, grifters, frauds, liars, morons, uh, scam artists, whatever, right? These people who, if they can make it through the gauntlet of elite institutions, the mainstream left, the elite left, because they all went to these institutions, they all have degrees from these kinds of institutions, um, they all know people at these institutions, their parents worked at these institutions, whatever, they have a natural deference. Oh, it's a Harvard professor. It's the president of Harvard? Harvard? Of course she's telling the truth. Of course she's right. She can't be guilty of plagiarism. That has to, oh, look who's pointing out they're a plagiarist. It has to be these crazy right, it's these crazy right wingers. They have blind spots. And the thing is, the sociology of the right is very different because we don't have those kinds of institutions. And because we have this 8,000 pound gorilla in the form of Donald Trump as the presumptive nominee for the GOP field where, and with millions of people, millions of Republicans deeply, deeply, deeply invested in defending Trump no matter what he says or how he says it. And this entire sort of industrial complex of, with full of people like, you know, Charlie Crook and Candace Owens and Jack Posobiec, however you say his name, um, 
And, and the thing that's sort of amazing is like these grifters and whack jobs and frauds are kind of more honest and open about it. But so long as they're attacked by the, by the left or the rhino establishment, and as long as they're supported by Trump, they have this weird credibility. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So so call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Anyway, I get into the G-File far more articulately than I'm frumfering and stuttering here about it. But it does raise an issue that I do want to talk about that I didn't talk about in there um, in the G-File, which is simply the importance of the value of partisanship. And look, I think my credibility on, on decrying stupid partisanship the last pick your number of years um, is pretty good. I mean, I'm constantly talking about the stupidity of the hyper-partisanship and all that kind of stuff and the weakness of parties and that strong partisanship is because of weak parties and that's a bad thing. And I, I stand by all of that. But it's also true that sort of inherent into my point about how we need stronger parties is that stronger parties would do partisanship better. And it is really valuable in a democracy to have good faith actors start from an adversarial position 
in arguments about major public policy things, in arguments about the distribution of resources, um, about the direction of the country. This is sort of, it's, it's sort of like it really is important in a court of law to have an adversarial process where the prosecution is looking for the weakest spots in the defense and the defense is looking for the weakest spots in the prosecution um, because you get closer to the truth that way. Good partisanship, right? Good opposition research, a really valuable thing in a healthy democracy um, because the incent- you need someone incentivized to call BS on the other side, to, to question the popular narratives. I know what you're thinking, which is, isn't that the job of the media? It is. They're not very good at it anymore, if they ever were. I love, I've, and I've written about this a zillion times, the self-serving way journalists love to, they have all these quotes like, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out, right? Don't take anybody's word at face value. You know, check it out, you know, all that kind of stuff. The number of things that may get into the mainstream media that no one wanted to check out. If you start trying to follow all the examples of it, it, you can kind of become an obsessive, which I know a lot of people on the right have become, right? Um, that doesn't mean the press does everything badly. I don't think that by for a moment, you know, it's just that particularly on these things that come out of this elite monoculture of, you know, things intersecting with race, with sexuality, the inability of, of reporters at these elite institutions to uh, swim against. The current is really strong and the incentives for going with the flow and not questioning the sort of elite shibboleths and the elite pieties is just really, really strong. But even if the press were doing a bang up, wonderful job, the truth of it is, is that you would still want good partisanship or healthy partisanship. A lot of the biggest exposés of crooked politicians, of, of politicians with horrible skeletons in their closets, the reporters get the credit, but the people who brought it to them were their, were their political opponents, right? There's an enormous amount of uh, document dumping and oppo dumping that reporters then pawn off as great shoe leather investigations. And you, it's not just in politics. I mean, <laughs> that once you know how much trial lawyers love to work with the TV show 60 Minutes, it explains a lot of the segments. I'm not saying there's anything evil necessarily about any of that or even bad. And some of it is really healthy and good. But just having, having zealous advocates for a point of view or for a party with a healthy understanding of what is actually good for the party is, a, is one of the things that actually makes democracy work. And there is no such thing as a democratic society with only one party, at least not for long. And this is one of the things we learned from the era of good feelings was that when you only have one party, you lose the ability to keep your own side honest and you lose the ability to focus the team on a goal. And so, you know, it's like I'm a big believer in deadlines because deadlines, I mean, it's a thing that journalists are, should be believe in, but it's like one of my points about, you know, we should have real election day and not all this early voting is that real deadlines focus the mind. If you have an infinite amount of time to, to, to concentrate on something, you'll never concentrate on it. You need something to say, oh crap, it's due Monday. Well, let me figure this out. 
And similarly, partisanship is the kind of thing that forces people to be on their toes. This gets at one of the Goldberg, you know, staples, which is that democracy is not about agreement. Democracy is about disagreement. It's about arguments. Arguments are good. Arguments are a search for truth. Um, arguments are sort of the democratic version of the Socratic method. Um, of course, you have to have arguments that are primarily concerned with things like facts that are built upon, rest on a foundation of facts and reason and logic and also good faith. And those are the things, those are the kinds of arguments that are in short supply. And those are the kinds of arguments that partisans these days care more about. And so anyway, my only point is, is I always, I'm always crapping all over the parties and partisanship. And I just want to make a quick point about how, you know, there's a role for healthy partisanship. It's not three cheers for partisanship. It's like one and a half maybe, but you just sort of need that esprit de corps. You need that discipline. You need that incentive structure to puncture groupthink. And groupthink is the enemy of, of wisdom, of decency, of so many things. Certainty is not, you know, there's this big argument that certainty is bad. You need to have doubt, right? The doubt about everything. This was Andrew Sullivan's big argument. I remember Anthony Lewis wrote this thing in the New York Times as sort of his retirement swan song, kind of, you know, the thing I've learned is that certainty is the cause of all bad things. And um, whether it's the Taliban or George W. Bush, something like that. I mean, I, I teed off on this a lot back in the day. Certainty is, is not the enemy of all things, um, if it's singular. The enemy of all those things, the thing that I think Lewis, if you want to be generous, was talking about, certainty in a group, certainty at scale can lead into all sorts of things if it's not grounded in fact, right? Certainty about that gravity exists is not a problem. Certainty that rape is bad is not a problem. Certainty about things that aren't true, which is what you get from groupthink, that's the real problem. But this sort of nihilistic, epistemological, we can't know anything, there are no capital T truth stuff, that's really dangerous. And that's sort of my problem with a lot of that kind of talk, but that's a topic for another day. So I had this idea that I was going to go through the parlor game thing and list all these people who were embarrassments to their own side, that it took a long time for their own side to, to spot but I'm, I'm kind of tired with the topic now. And if I have to talk about Greta Thunberg, I might lose it. Here's the thing I've been thinking about a bunch. Um, I haven't talked about the Israel situation for a little while, um, in part because my friends over at the commentary podcast get so granular with all of it that um, I kind of feel like I've had my fill just when I've listened to them talk about it, or at the very least, most listeners who are really interested. There's just so many other places that they can go um, to stay on top of it. And this is not, not to, I mean, look, I've written a lot about it and I've talked a lot about it. It's just that there's not a lot new to say. It's just a lot of the same arguments being trotted out. But I am, you know, so I, like the thing that is just sort of at a meta level that kind of, and I know I've touched on this before, but I, I, I still kind of amazes me the way in which the, uh, the discourse, I know that's a fancy pants word, the conversation from these sort of pro-Palestinian, which is not necessarily the same thing as pro-Hamas and, you know, all those caveats still apply and blah, 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 blah. It's all fine. But there's this 
tendency to sort of remember the Seinfeld where all the characters yada yada past the the important parts. There's this tendency to sort of yada yada the death cult medieval barbarian rapists and and ghouls aspect of Hamas to move towards this sort of more high-minded argument about the 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 innate dignity of Palestinians and and the and the legitimacy of their struggle and I get it right I totally get it like there is a legitimate grievance on the Palestine there are legitimate grievances on the Palestinian side and I'm one of these people who say a lot of those grievances should be aimed at their own leadership first. But again, I don't want to go down very old, tired arguments. No, the, the thing I'm trying to get at is, is that the way people talk about this is the way that sort of Shadi Hamid and some of these other people, and I like Shadi Hamid, I'm not trying to you know dunk on him from a great height, but even you know my old friend Peter Beinart, the way they, they talk about this stuff, it's not that they necessarily don't acknowledge that Hamas is bad, though a lot of people do, just not those two people. But the, what they want to do is have a conversation as if Hamas was behaving like a Gandhian movement or like a Martin Luther King civil rights movement, and so that the moral authority was all on their side, right? That's, that's the conversation they want to have. And I would want to have that conversation too. The problem, it seems to me, is... That problem has nothing to do with the reality of the current situation. And again, I'm not, I'm not necessarily accusing anyone, at least I've, I've name-checked, of actual dishonesty here. I see a lot of dishonesty when I, when I follow this stuff, you know. It's, it's, it's more, it's sort of like making the wish the father of the thought thing, right? Since Hamas is literally indefensible. Um, and if you think anything that Hamas has done is defensible, then you're just gonna we're just gonna have a conflict of visions here. Let me put it. I mean, I, I made this point before when I was talking to Adam about all of this at the very beginning. But we teach people in this country that Martin Luther King is as close as we get to a sort of a secular saint, right? That he is if we. If we had a national agreement that we were going to put someone who wasn't a president on Mount Rushmore, there would be a very forceful argument to put Martin Luther King on it, right? That's just what we're talking I'm not saying I'm in favor of that. I'm not saying I'm opposed to that. I'm just saying, like, he has that level of stature. There's a statue, you know, there's a monument to him on the mall. How many non-presidents um, or non-war victims um, have monuments on the mall. He's just a, this huge figure. And I think for largely justifiable reasons, you know, again, I, I talked about this a little bit with Paul Bloom, but I don't like it. I didn't agree with, I, mean, I, I wasn't alive when he was alive, but you know, I don't agree with the historic Martin Luther King's views on, on foreign policy, on economics, on a lot of things. But the things that I agree with him on are these things that touch on uh, not just touch on, that update, illuminate, and expand upon the fundamental principles that define the best parts of what this country is about, right? He's the one who takes Lincoln's words and updates them for the moment to appeal to the best versions 
of the American people and saying, we're falling short of our ideals. And I, you know, that's a big part of my book, Suicide of the West. I've talked about it here a million times. And so, but one of the things that made Martin Luther King, and this is some, a hero, and this is something that was taught at, from the earliest age, was his policy of nonviolence, right? Um, his exhortation of his followers to hew to a higher standard than that of the people they were politically fighting with. Not to get, you know, the whole idea was to not to give the, the racist or the defenders of the status quo and of Jim Crow any excuse, be better. That took real courage. People got the stuffing beaten out of them. Um, they got arrested. They got fire hoses on them. It took real exertion and real self-restraint. Um, similarly, you know, Gandhi, we've talked about all my problems with Gandhi on here before, but this idea of, you know, nonviolence and passive resistance, it's really hard to tell large numbers of people just to take beatings. But the whole part of the argument was to take the moral high road. Now, this is a huge counterfactual, but I think I'm on pretty solid grounds that we would not have these attitudes about Gandhi or about Martin Luther King if they exhorted their followers to rape any women, you know, to rape white women and rape British women wherever they found them, to cut off the heads of babies, to burn families alive, to murder children in front of their parents or parents in front of their children. I just kind of feel that we wouldn't have a monument to Martin Luther King on the mall and we wouldn't have a Martin Luther King day if Martin Luther King went on TV all the time and saying, we love, my people love death. Um, and we raise our, and if Coretta Scott King was talking about how we raise our kids to be martyrs and blow themselves up for, for, for God, that's just me. It seems to me a pretty obvious point. It seems to me you can't even obliquely, even orthogonally, right? You know, even sort of in your significant silences, take this pose of only talking about the excesses of Israel as if with this sort of sort of this sort of implied tone that somehow the Palestinian cause is congruous with that kind of moral movement. The Palestinian cause may be at some deep level, right, or some high level of abstraction, there is definitely a moral case. Like I I'm not alone saying I'm not the first or the last or anything to say this, but like I've talked to so many Israelis, so many Jews who, who, you know, either agreed with the point or expressed the point that if, if the Palestinians had started like Gandhi from the beginning, there'd be two states side by side long time ago, right? The Israeli kids would get out of their tanks if you asked them to kill peaceful marchers. But that's not what this medieval Muslim death cult wants. It's not what they promote. It's not what they teach in school. They teach in school to kill Jews where you find them. And so the, that cause may be out there, that argument may be lurking out there, but there is no political entity that justifies that kind of framing right now. Like when I listen to some of these people on MSNBC or on NPR and they talk about this situation, 
they make it all sound like Palestinian grievances are so reasonable. And yeah, I mean, look, I, we can talk about the actual casualties and the deaths and all that. That's a different, important and legitimate topic, but that's just not the point I'm trying to get at right now. There is this sort of aroma, this atmosphere of we're the morally righteous movement here. Israel is like, you know, apartheid South Africa or Jim Crow, right? That's the argument these people, because they've been raised so much, well, either they've been raised on it or they know Americans have been raised on that narrative. And they know that narrative is sort of, for good reasons, sort of morally unquestionable about how you think about these things as good versus bad. The only problem is, is that, I'm sorry, Israel's not an apartheid state. Like, I get it, but the stuff about, you know, Gaza and the West Bank, and there are arguments there that with, with solid criticisms against Israel all over the place. That's all fine. But you can't talk about a tiny little country where a fifth of the population, Muslim, Arab, full citizens with representation in the Knesset, with full rights, and talk to me about how it's a racial apartheid state. I mean, you just look at the IDF, the whole people of color thing just doesn't work at all. This, this, this desire to sort of impose those sorts of plot points to what's going on when, when in fact what's going on is just, it's just so very different. And so long as you're making those arguments when Hamas is saying we want a thousand more October 7th and, you know, is still holding these hostages and is playing tapes of kids crying um, in these tunnels under hospitals, among other places, uh, so that the IDF will think they're rescuing a hostage when in fact it's a tape recording with a bomb on it. You just can't even by implication try to steal some of the 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 moral courage and moral stature of Martin Luther King of Gandhi or Gandhi um, for your cause. You don't get that rhetoric. It's just not, a, you don't have access to it. And I understand why people want to have access to it, but if they want to have access to it, go find a pal, go create a Palestinian organization that actually practices what people like King and Gandhi preached. And I'm not trying to turn Gandhi and King into, you know, demigods or anything like this they were they're they are more mortal and i have plenty of criticisms certainly of gandhi but also you know again martin luther king was wrong about a lot of things by my lights but their fundamental insight his fundamental insight about what this country is and should be about and how to attain his goals were were clearly morally admirable you cannot use the phrase morally admirable and hamas in the same, on the same continent. I mean, forget the same sentence or the same zip code. I mean, they're just, Hamas is evil. And there is no, if you just described in basic facts what Hamas says, right? If you actually listen to their speeches, everyone should go check out Memory, M-E-M-R-I. I think it's just memory.org or maybe it's memorytv.org. You can find it. They translate these things constantly of these Hamas leaders talking about how they worship death and the Israelis care too much about life. We don't and blah, 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 blah. And you have these women who go on these TV shows and they're full, you know, head coverings talking about how we teach children to embrace death and to be martyrs and all that. That's evil. It's just like you can't make it. You couldn't make a movie about a realistic movie about Hamas and not have them be evil. Not Palestinians, right? Not, not, 
necessarily the Palestinian Authority, though that's no great shakes either. But the Palestinian Authority is is less evil. <laughs> uh, maybe it's just bad compared to Hamas. And I just I resent that's that that's the thing that has got me worked up about this. I resent the implication that I should give a single inch to that kind of moral case for against Israel, which is de facto a whitewashing of Hamas um, in this context. So anyway, strong letter to follow. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So Ron Dermer, um, some of you may know him, he's a special advisor to Bibi Netanyahu. I think he's coming to the States for as some sort of envoy. I can't remember. He got some new appointment. I met Ron Dermer. Nice guy. He looks a lot like Treat Williams. Um, and I'm not the first person to tell him that. Really smart guy. I think he was a Wharton guy and then went to Oxford and got a PhD. And he was an American political, young political consultant type, worked on contract with America as a young dude and all that. Moved to Israel. Loved him. Wrote, wrote a good piece around the time, I think, about, about leaving the country that he loved or whatever. Anyway, I met him. I don't know him well. I, I'm, I suspect he'd remember me for reasons that I'll explain in a second. But that one time I went to Israel uh, on this you know, journalistic junket thing, which was really a fantastic trip until it ended very badly. We met Dermer. Dermer helped get a meeting with my group. <laughs> One of the people in my group, which I had completely forgotten until last year when a friend I hadn't talked to in a long time, who was also on this trip, reminded me of it. One of the people on that trip was Elise Stefanik, um, which I had completely forgotten. And because she was so quiet, intimidated, and kind of forgettable at the time. Very nice, but like just not, not someone you would expect to become the sort of super Trumpy um, Republican MAGA type that she is. Dermer helped set up a meeting with uh, Netanyahu, which was really interesting. And we talked to him a bunch and um, Dermer and, and Netanyahu, but Dermer more. And then anyway, just so those of you who don't know, like the reason why the trip ended badly is I got a call from home. I can talk about it a little more honestly now because my mom's not with us anymore, anymore either. I got a call from my wife saying, Jonah, you have to come home. You have to do something. Josh had a terrible, my brother Josh had a terrible accident. And my mom was basically in shock and denial about it and didn't want anyone to ruin my trip which was, of course, crazy. And, you know, my mom later realized how crazy it was. But at the time, she just was not right in the head. And fun fact, you know, like I was supposed to come home at the end of that trip. And like the day after I was supposed to come home, I was supposed to get the CPAC Conservative Journalist of the Year Award to receive it, um, which was back then called the Robert Novak, I think maybe still, the Robert Novak Conservative Journalist of the Year Award. And given Robert Novak's anti-Israel stuff, I was really looking forward to giving a speech saying it's so great to just get back from Tel Aviv to receive the Robert Novak Conservative Journalist of the Year Award. 
Um, but anyway, I, I still got the award. Rich Lowry received it for me. But obviously I had to come home and deal with the horribleness of my brother's situation who was on life support um, with basically no brain activity. Um, he had fallen down a flight of stairs, drunk, and smashed his head. And it fell to me to sort of take him off life support and a more terrible thing in my life I cannot begin to tell you. But um, we don't need to dwell on all of the terrible parts of that story. Um, but the, the thing is, so I leave, I get the word. Basically, the last thing I did was we, were, we had just finished having meeting with Dermer and Netanyahu. And then me and John McCormick and this guy, uh, Michael Goldfarb and, and Noah Pollock and a few other people were having drinks. And that's when I get the call from Jessica. So I immediately just like bolt, get in the cab, go to my hotel, try to figure out a flight, long flight back from Israel at short notice, get home, go basically straight from the airport to the hospital, check on my brother, check on my my sister-in-law, all that stuff. And then it's my daughter's birthday coming up. And so I just need to walk and get out of things. And I go to FAO Schwartz to go shop for presents and stuff. And I'm walking around in the toy store and I literally just like walk straight into some guy and it's Ron Dermer. <laughs> and it completely freaked me out. Like, you know how when something's just so strange happens that your brain is all of a sudden looking for either metaphysical or sinister explanations of words? Like, I, I felt like I had left five minutes ago this guy in Israel, and now I'm bumping into him in FAO Schwartz. And I tried to explain to him what was going on with me. He started to cry. He was very sweet about it. Last time I ever saw him. But the thing is, he's on the news all the time now. And every time I see him, it makes me think about all this stuff. It's just one of these weird life things. Anyway, so I'm in a bit of a introspective, melancholy, uh, melancholy is the wrong word, nostalgic mood. Because um, when I was buying presents for everybody else, I finally got one for myself. And I got one of these slide and negative scanner things that you can turn old slides into digital pictures. And my parents left me hundreds of slides and negatives of old pictures that um, the prints, you know, have long since vanished or gotten mangled or whatever. And so I've spent a lot of the last week going through and digitizing these pictures. And it's, it's, it's really sort of a fascinating little process because you realize most, I mean, most of the pictures you take of stuff, if someone you love isn't in the picture or if you yourself isn't in the picture there's just not that much reason to take the picture and obviously there are exceptions but like lots of pictures from the circus and they're not great pictures and you can get better images of the circus from professional photographers and you know pictures of buildings and whatnot but there's also just some really fantastic pictures of me and Josh when we were little kids. Um, lots of stuff that if I hadn't had them seen the pictures trigger the memory, I never would have remembered again. 
lots of great pictures of um, my mom and dad with with me and Josh. Um, found a one of, has to be one of the handful of pictures of me with my grandfather on my dad's side because um, bo- most of my grandparents died when I was very young. It's also a great picture of my brother and I being pulled around on a wagon by my grandmother on my mom's side in a on her when she's riding a riding mower pulling us on a wagon and we're having the time of our lives lots of that kind of stuff it's just it's also kind of I mean some of the pictures my daughter and my wife are kind of excited to see but one of the great frustrations is there's some pictures I'm like who is that again or where was this taken or that kind of thing and I have nobody to ask because everyone's gone and that's the melancholy you know, bitter part of the bittersweetness of it all. I'm so I'm pretty sure I've told people this before. My mom, um, among the many adventures of her long and storied career is she was something of a spy uh, for the Nixon campaign on the McGovern press plane. Spies strong, but not entirely unfair either. It was a big scandal, should have been a big scandal. Uh, my mom was fired for, um, doing what she did. She should have been fired. <laughs> um, I'm not, I'm, my mom is a character. I'm not, I, 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 I can only defend some of the things my mom did and said as her son, because I loved her and she was a character. But anyway, you know, she had all these stories about like hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson on the campaign, bu- McGovern campaign bus. And anyway, she clearly took some pictures from what, what appears to be a chartered plane from the McGovern campaign. And I cannot for the life of me identify who's in the pictures, but I'd just be kind of curious. There's nothing embarrassing about the pictures. It's just kind of interesting little slice of history. I also found some pictures of my dad from Japan um, because, you know, he was stationed in Japan for a while uh, when he was in the army. And it's just kind of wild to see him in uniform. There's one really weird picture of him, nothing salacious about it, but he's posing with like six young presumably Japanese women in uniform, in military uniform. So that's the only thing is I'm wondering if maybe they're like, they were translators for the American. I I don't know, but I would love to know what the story is. And they're all standing in front of some Buddha. Anyway, it's been a interesting process um, of sort of self-discovery, self-rediscovery, going through a lot of these pictures, which have been sitting in a drawer of mine. I'm in my office right here behind me for almost 20 years. Anyway, so if you wanted to know why I have such morosity at this moment, that's why. But I don't want to leave on a morose note. I wrote my LA Times column on this um, about how 2023 was the year I gave up on horseshoe theory. Some interesting comments from people. Uh, Cynthia, a devoted commenter and reader in the comment section, um, said something like she was glad I wrote this because I was so much, this helped explain it so much better than the way I have from the way I talk on this podcast. And that kind of threw me for a loop. I'm not angry about it. I just didn't think I was that convoluted on the podcast about this. Let me just sort of flesh this out a little bit, right? So I never liked horseshoe theory. I actually got to say, Never called it horseshoe theory until fairly recently, you know, last few years kind of thing when the term really took off. The term is credited to this French writer who, you know, talked about it in uh, a book about the century of ideologies, which was dated to 1996. I, I knew 
versions of horseshoe theory which come out of Hannah Arendt and, you know, the debates about vital center liberalism um, in the 1940s and 50s is a very old argument. The reason why I rejected it is uh, came almost entirely out of my work on liberal fascism because there are a lot of people who studied and write about totalitarianism who would make the case that all totalitarianisms are fundamentally alike, to which I basically agree, right? That part I don't really have a problem with. Totalitarianism is totalitarianism because there are no checks and balances. There are no ways to keep politicians or rulers honest. Um, the myths and symbols and arguments that the totalitarians use and the definitions of favored groups and unfavored groups, those things will change depending upon whether you're, you know, forget communist or, or fascist, whether you're Chinese communist or Russian communist or, or whatever. Totalitarianism is totalitarianism. That doesn't mean all totalitarianisms are equally evil. Some of that kind of depends on whose ox is getting gored. So there's a very legitimate reason why say, Jews would say that Nazism was clearly and distinctly more evil than communism. And there, I mean, there are other arguments that don't have to do, but like if you were a Ukrainian peasant in the 1930s, your attitude might have been, Jews schmooze, I'm starving to death here and it's Stalin's fault. I mean, I'm not trying to make light of these things. I'm just trying to say that like you can understand why certain victim groups would, would consider the people who victimize them to be worse than others. Uh, so like a, that's a human thing. But there are other philosophical arguments about why communism isn't as bad as Nazism. And I'm not sure I buy all of them. I think Richard Pipes had the best uh, sort of answer to this when Jay Nordlinger asked him, why do people think Nazism is worse than communism? And he said, because it just feels that way. And I, I think that's a pretty good non-academic answer, um, even though Richard Pipes was one of the great intellectual historians of the 20th century. But one of the answers I have some sympathy with is that at least the stated ideals of communism appealed to sort of universal humanity and brotherhood, whereas Nazism was about a master race and had instantiated within it expressed, admitted bigotries in ways that communism hid. And that's it's a good argument at one level, but on another argument, it sort of says Nazis are bad because they were honest about their evil, while communists were good because they were dishonest about their evil. Um, I don't know. This is one of the reasons why I think it just is, it feels that way. Anyway, back to horseshoe theory. This, uh, this, this idea, would, and I talked about this a lot when I was promoting liberal fascism, is that there is this widespread view pushed primarily by a certain breed of sort of what somewhat unfairly, but we would call vital center liberals who would like draw a circle on the board and put themselves, people like themselves, liberal Democrats, Arthur Schlesinger liberals, whatever, they would put themselves at the 12 o'clock position. And then they would draw sort of like a, a horseshoe that eventually closes a circle and on the exact opposite side of the 12, the six o'clock, right? The diametrically opposed side, just off to the left and right of each of those, they would put communism and fascism and say, I'm a good Democrat, I'm a liberal. After all, all totalitarians, totalitarianisms meet at the extremes. It was sort of like what you would do is like you would do a straight line, like a spectrum, right? From zero to 100, and you would put the liberal in the center and the 
communist at the zero and the the Nazi at the hundred, and then you just sort of bend the line so the two meet. And my objection to this always was, and some of you have heard me say this before, I'm sure, is that there are very few places in life where we talk about opposites being the same. Opposites have similarities. Apples and oranges have more in common with each other than apples and aircraft carriers do, right? Because they are both they both in the same, they share many of the same categories. Fruit, round, things you eat when you're a lot, when you're a kid. I mean, you can go through staples of the produce industry, right? Um, it always bothers me when people talk about apples and oranges being apples opposites. They're not. They're slightly different categories. You wouldn't say, but you still, you would never say something is so orange it became an apple, right? You certainly would not say something is so hot it became cold. Um, I always used to joke, the only other example I can think of this is that some things are so ugly they're cute, like bulldog puppies. But generally, we don't say opposites become the same thing. And that's because fascism and Nazism, uh, Nazism and communism were not opposites, they were, as, as Richard Pipes put it, both heresies of socialism. They both come out of the revolutionary tradition. They both come out of the socialist tradition. Important, historically fascinating and significant differences between them. You know, but people would say, of course, they're opposites. Look how much they wanted to kill each other. It's like, yeah, but as I was talking about with Paul Bloom the other day, the people who usually want to kill each other are the people who have the most in common, you know. You know, it's, it's people who are, are so different that they don't have any conceptions of each other tend not to want to kill each other. The narcissism of small differences is real. And think about any of the most famous, I, I talk about this in my underrated second book, Tyranny Clichés. Think about any two famously hostile groups. They know each other really well, right? This is why I always talk about how understanding is overrated. Um, people think if we could just understand each other, there would be no, no wars or no violence. Not true. Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants understood each other really freaking well, much better than the Germans understood either of them. And yet there wasn't a lot of fighting between Germans and the Irish Catholics or Irish Protestants. Palestinians and Israelis actually understand each other pretty friggin' well, better than Americans understand either. Serbs and Croats, you know, you just go down a very, you, Russians and Ukrainians, uh, they understand each other really, really well. And they fight. And, you know, Coke's biggest rival is Pepsi. These are, uh, the drinks are different, but they're not opposites of each other, right? So hostility and antagonism does not imply um, categorical, categorical, categorical oppositeness or orthogonal distinctions. But the reason why that kind of horseshoe theory was so, again, it wasn't called, to my knowledge, it wasn't called horseshoe theory when I was engaging with a lot of that stuff, but it's the same concept, is it always put a certain kind of mainstream elite centrist liberal in the morally pristine position and whichever direction you move from them to the left or to the right the further away you were getting from goodness and the closer you were getting to badness not to sound too much like judge smalls from caddyshack larger problems is the overlay of this was to say was this assumption that was imported from a lot of european discourse was this assumption that the american right in the Anglo-American tradition was derived from the, historic, the, the intellectual traditions that gave rise to Nazism. That's just not true. And that's what I got into a little bit in the, in the syndicated column was that, you know, 
and it's what I got into in Suicide of the West. It's what I got into in this podcast a million times is that the conservatives and conservatives in the Anglo-American tradition weren't statists. They weren't statism was, uh, you know, in the continental intellectual tradition, statism, whether it was under socialism or under uh, monarch monarchism, statism just isn't a dirty word. This idea that the state should be the expression of the culture and the national Volksgemeinschaft or whatever is much less controversial in the European tradition. And in the American tradition, which, you know, is born of the American Revolution, which harkens back to the ancient rights and liberties, uh, the founders assumed, you know, or the rebels originally assumed were theirs by virtue of the British tradition. The orientation towards the state is just different. You know, in America, you could be called a right-wing extremist if you were a radical libertarian. And so just this whole idea that the more right-wing you become in the Anglo-American tradition, the closer you get to fascism, was just ludicrous. And just just a complete misapplication of the intellectual tradition or the relevant intellectual history on the American political context. And I've told the origin stories of liberal fascism, the book, before, in that one of the things that put me on this path was I was at AEI as a young policy gnome when the bell curve came out. And whatever your feelings about the bell curve are, we can argue about those another day. I witnessed the explosion in rage against the bell curve as this, I mean, literally the local news, I was just, my, my jaw dropped. They ran footage from Nuremberg rallies of Nazis, you know, crowds of Nazis saluting with the, you know, voiceover, a new book raises concerns about the return of, you know, uh, ancient hatreds and blah, 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 whatever. There's a concerted effort to turn Charles into a Nazi. And you can have all sorts of disagreements with, with Charles. Charles, is, Charles Murray is a dear friend of mine and he's a brilliant man. And he's been nothing but, but you know, sweet and generous to me for 30 years. But I disagree with him about some stuff. That's all fine. He's not a Nazi. He's like this soaked to the bone libertarian. You know how I know that? He wrote a book called What It Means to Be a Libertarian. And so the idea that he wanted, he doesn't think the government is qualified to round up your garbage, never mind round up its citizens. But this, this idea that the further right you got in the Anglo-American context, in the American context, the closer you got to Nazism, it's a huge overlay. And people who are denying that this wasn't a major intellectual talking point among sort of elite liberals for the last 70 years. Um, this came up recently in these arguments about whether the is Trump Hitler um, stuff, whether the people saying it have lost their credibility given how often they've argued that conservatives in America are fascists in the past. And there were a bunch of liberals saying, we never did that. That's not true. It's just, it's, you did. I mean, not you specifically, but you know, Argumentum ad Hitlerum was used routinely against William F. Buckley, against Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater. You know, you can go down a long list. I can give you chapter and verse on it, but you've heard me do it before. And so part of my problem with the horseshoe theory thing was when people use it in the Anglo, in the, in the American context, it wasn't accurate because it was conjuring on that body of literature that I just thought that body of argumentation that I just thought was profoundly and deeply flawed for reasons I've already gone into. And yet I'm now okay with using the phrase horseshoe theory and I don't like it. I don't like it because I don't want it to be analytically descriptive and accurate, but it is. And the argument for it 
in much the same way what I was talking about before about how all, you know, totalitarianisms all are more similar to each other than they are different. Um, again, the uniforms are different. The posters are some, sometimes different. Um, the myths and mythopoetic rhetoric about, you know, the glorious past or the, 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 the lyr- delightful future um, will change with different languages and different cultures. But the, on the big social organizational questions, they're all the same. You know, they're all, you know, that's, they're all ruled by a single, essentially a single leader and a, and a single political party in, a, in, a, in effect. And the thing that distinguishes, you know, this is work that Big New Brzezinski and others have done, um, and Samuel Huntington, I think, but I think it's Brzezinski's phrase, the, the, the distinction between authoritarian regimes and totalitarian regimes is that totalitarian regimes have no islands of separateness, no safe harbors where politics does not intrude. All meaningful institutions in life, up to and sometimes including the family, need to be incorporated into the political program. So this is what made Nazism totalitarianism. It's what made Stalinism totalitarianism, uh, totalitarian. You know, authoritarian regimes can be evil. They can be terrible. They can do horrible, commit horrible crimes. But they tend to leave certain institutions alone and not rock the boat. They don't necessarily expropriate the the property of the aristocracy or they don't, you know, destroy the churches. They le- they leave sports leagues alone. I mean, you can pick take your pick, but they're they're just sort of like they're like mob bosses who say, pay us our tribute, don't question our authority, and then you can go on with your lives. Doesn't make them good, just makes them less bad than totalitarianism, which says even your private thoughts need to be committed to the the revolutionary project or whatever. And so, yeah, those things are similar, very similar. What makes them similar is their illiberalism. And illiberalism encompasses a lot of different things. It's a denial of pluralism, no islands of separateness, right? It's, uh, you know, denial of pluralism. It's a denial of a related concept, subsidiarity, federalism, localism, all those things. Um, Illiberalism is also, by my lights, I mean, I've written about this at book length, has a lot to do with identity politics, because identity politics, the hard form of identity politics, assumes that you can never escape the iron cage of identity, that there are, that even modes of thought are bound up in our race or our sex or our ethnicity, that kind of thing. That's bad in and of itself for a bunch of different reasons, but one of the reasons why it's bad is, and this never gets the the attention that it deserves is that if you take that stuff seriously, um, you know, Leonard Jeffries, you know, stuff about ice people and sun people or the Nazis stuff about, you know, Jewish logic or, you know, or, or Ibram Kendi talking about whiteness being a barrier to empathy and all these kinds of things. If you take those kinds of arguments remotely seriously, what you're basically saying is that reason itself doesn't work here, right? The reason why in like Catholic theology and Catholic moral teaching and Jewish moral teaching that reason is important, the reason why reason is important, forget what religion teaches it, is that reason is the way you reach and appeal to other people's consciences. It's the way you persuade people about a course of action, about facts, about common interests. And if you say that's impossible because of our innate iron cages of identity, make it and create these insuperable barriers, 
then you're basically saying reason no longer has any place in our political discourse and our political deliberations. And you are basically creating a permission structure for violence, um, for instrumentalism, for disregarding people, because heck, there's no reasoning with them anyway. And that kind of an entity politics is all over the place these days on the left and the right. Asymmetrical. I'm not going to get into the asymmetry thing again, but you get the point. And you can go down a long list. Um, a lot of the places where the it's the agreements that bother me more than the disagreements. Neither party is a free trade party anymore. Both parties are in favor of some form. You know, again, there are outliers, there are dissenters, there are heretics, whatever. But both parties basically are in favor of um, protectionism and industrial policy, various forms of economic statism to one extent or another. And certainly very few people are making the arguments about free markets and um free trade. That's a move towards illiberalism as well. And you can go down a long list of, you know, I, I would argue that one of the hallmarks of illiberalism is actually not caring about facts, right? It's because illiberalism reduces things to questions of power. And for partly for the reasons I was getting into identity politics, but also because the whole point of illiberalism, whether you're talking about Carl Schmitt's theories of it or whoever's, is that force and power determine winners and losers in politics. And if you just accept that, um, you'll be more effective at winning in politics. That's creeping into all sorts of constitutional stuff. We're seeing the Federalist Society get sidelined um, by the Trump crowd. Trump's talking about a dictator, about being a dictator, and he's playing stupid word games with it. But that's, you know, the impulse to immediately defend him or roll your eyes at people who have a problem with it, that's illiberalism. And I, and I also think that, like, the executive orders from Biden are illiberal. I think the stuff that we see on the crazy intersectional left, the rhetoric we see about climate change, there are all sorts of arguments that depend on illiberal assumptions where the time for debate, Obama used to love to say, you know, the time for discussion is over. The time for debate is over, which drives me crazy. He's not the only person to say it. It's a very common phrase. It's a very illiberal phrase. And I just think we are in a moment where illiberalism seems like the new hotness on both sides. And the people who disagree just don't want to engage in the argument. They want to sort of be remnant types and God bless them for it and get on with their lives and not engage with the jackwads who are controlling the debate. And the problem with that is that if people making good arguments disappear, then the bad arguments will seem to the normal people like the only arguments there are. That sort of tendency, with all sorts of difference and caveats and context and yada, 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 that sort of tendency is a bipartisan tendency today. This sort of pursuit of power for that the pursuit and attainment of power is justifying for its own sake, the demonization of the other team, uh, the retreat into identity politics logic, the rejection of uh, the constraints of the constitutional order. I see them all over the place and I see them on both sides. I have deep and unpopular explanations about where some, where I think some of this stuff comes from and why I blame the left for creating some of these problems on the right. And I get very angry on the right for making bad choices about how they reacted to the left. But the blame part isn't the issue here. It's the fact that, that I think horseshoe theory in the American context, once, once the Republicans or the conservatives 
and I mean this, the ones who are at, at the rhetorical level, the ones who are defining the Republican Party, the ones that the conservative movement feels it's needed to defend, once they move from the sort of principled Anglo-American liberalism that um, I had in mind when I was writing liberal fascism, what I had in mind when I was rejecting horseshoe theory, when they abandon that, then they are basically joining in on the same, they're, they're sharing the same impulses and assumptions that I saw on the left and thought were so terrible and wrong and worth fighting. They're just coming up with their own right-wing flavors for it. And that's what I see in people like Josh Hawley. That's what I see in people like J.D. Vance. That's clearly what I see in a lot of Trump's defenders. With Trump himself, I don't necessarily see that because I just think he is utterly immune to serious intellectual ideological considerations of any kind. And it's just the, you know, nearest weapon to hand is the way he argues about everything. He cares about power and adulation. And he's got a personality type that I think lends itself to certain authoritarian or totalitarian conceptions. But we're getting far afield now. Um, and so am I. So I'm just going to stop here. Um, we can pick this up later. Uh, I told you we wanted to do an AMA this week, but Guy flew the coop to the UK and we haven't figured that part out yet. So if you got questions about all this, I can get into them in the AMA, but we are going to get back to doing that. And that will only be in the skiff, which you can only get if you are a subscriber to the dispatch. So there's still time to become a subscriber in 2023. There's still time to get someone a gift, gift, gift subscription for 2024. And um, I'll talk to you next time.